From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Well, the former right-hand man to the ex-Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan is now headed to prison. We'll talk about the sentencing of Tim Mapes and where the case against Madigan stands. Also, the governor gets ready for his budget and state of the state address. We'll take a look at what some of the issues may be there. We'll talk about it all on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And with us, we have Ray Long, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Ray, it's always good to have you back with us. Always good to be here, Sean. Thank you. So, Ray, I know you were covering uh, the Tim Mapes uh, sentencing hearing and, of course, the case that went before that. He was, for people that don't know, Madigan's longtime chief of staff. He's not necessarily a household name in Illinois, but if anyone worked around the Capitol in the past couple of decades, they know who Tim Mapes is. He was convicted last year. So before we get too far along, what was the case against him? Well, the case was basically that uh, the prosecution in the long-running uh, corruption case against Mike Madigan uh, brought him in to testify before the grand jury. They immune, gave him immunity, too, to tell the truth. All he had to do was tell the truth. And uh, he even went before a federal judge who said, you know, you got to tell the truth. And that's the only way you could get in trouble is if you don't tell the truth. Well, he gave a bunch of uh, answers that were really vague and a lot of I don't recalls. And the um, questions were in kind of the vein of, can you describe uh, the relationship between Mike Madigan and, and Mike McLean, the longtime ComEd lobbyist and former lawmaker who was... Mike Madigan's uh, longtime close confidant. And so uh, he avoided a lot of those with these vague and unresponsive answers. Uh, they had seven uh, possible ways that he could, could uh, that the jury could say, you know, he avoided this answer, this answer, seven different questions. And they only needed to check one. They checked all seven. And I listened to the tape in the of his grand jury appearance in the courtroom, a rare moment where they actually played a full grand jury appearance in the courtroom. And, uh, you know, they probably could have tried to make hay out of a few other of the answers that he gave to that were elusive. Uh, he uh, did not uh, give them what they wanted, uh, obviously, and uh, the... Uh, defense was that, uh, well, the, the questions were vague, but uh, the prosecution's come back to that point was, you know, if you answer vaguely on big questions, then we can't delve down further with deeper questions and uh, get to some of the foundational issues of, of what was going on and, and what you could tell about uh, the issues that were being investigated in the ComEd investigation against Madigan. So the judge actually uh, could have given him up to 63 months. He reviewed in long detailed responses that he thought that the 
prosecution had correctly identified the uh, contours of what Mapes could have been sentenced to. However, he did not think it was a good fit. And uh, he did take into consideration uh, more than 100 letters of support for Mapes. And he did take into consideration um, a lot of the other types of sentences that had gone down in this district and around the country uh, for uh, perjury. And of course, he, he was convicted of perjury and, and attempted obstruction of justice. Uh, he could have gotten um, much more. The, the judge basically split the baby and gave him 2.5 years. Charlie, we've talked about the case in the past and with Ray on the show. Uh, Tim Mapes was, yeah, this kind of blows my mind because he was a detailed guy. It seemed like he's smart enough not to make that mistake before a grand jury. So the fact that it it just doesn't seem to play to type. Yeah, and I I first met Tim Mapes, it would have been the early spring of 1981 when he was working on redistricting uh, the Democrats' won the the draw to be able to redistrict the legislature and he was one of Madigan's point guys and I was at the Sun-Times at the time and so I I relied on him to let me know what was going on and the thing that I think that the main question is and this is something and Ray if I'm not mistaken the judge raised this question in great detail why why when Tim Mapes was a very smart guy knows I've been immunized as long as I tell the truth nothing can happen to me so why would he lie that's the big question and I think the uh, the judge said that he didn't understand why he he would he would lie uh, and I think the judge this is a quote from one of the stories Perhaps this was out of some sense of loyalty, but if that was the case, your loyalty was greatly misguided. And he he wondered if Mapes was operating under the old, uh, what was the mafia rule? What's it called? Omarta? Omarta. Omarta, yeah. yeah. And uh, he raised that the, point. Yeah, he raised that point several you, times. You don't, you don't rat out your friends. You just keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, that certainly has not served Tim well in this circumstance. And as I say, the big question is why? And there's been some speculation that had he answered, as you suggested, these more general questions, honestly, there have been deeper probes into some other stuff that has not come out yet that would get Madigan in even hotter water. But who knows? I mean, Tim is the only one who knows. And I feel sorry for his, his family. It's one of those deals where you see it all the time with uh, public officials who uh, break the law and then uh, they leave a family behind with, uh, you know, who are hurt and feel bad about it. And uh, Tim did say when he spoke to the judge that, uh, you know, he felt bad about how, about uh, leaving his family in this condition, including a, a father over around uh, Western Illinois where he grew up. Uh, who he still goes over to help uh, with, uh, you know, bringing in the crops and planting the crops. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that every time this happens, you have to wonder why people are are not thinking about their family when they go over the line. Yeah. 
and I should correct myself. Uh, Tim is only 69. Yeah. I say only because I'm a lot older than that. <laughs> so, Ray, I mean, as far as, um, you know, when I when we go back to this, it seems to me that one thing that a federal prosecutor really is not going to stand for is somebody not telling the truth in this situation, because that's their whole point. Now, if somebody truly doesn't know or they don't have evidence on something, that might be one thing. But they, you know, their whole cases, and I don't know if their whole case depended upon Tim Mapes necessarily, like Charlie said, maybe there was more there that they were trying to get at. But at the same time, no love lost there when it comes to prosecutors. And and, so, and, we, and we've seen something very similar going on here in Springfield in a federal court case with a former state senator, Sam McCann. After a while, uh, the prosecutors get a little tired of some of the gamesmanship. Well, true. I think that they wanted to also make it clear that they their investigation is a serious effort here. And if uh, they just start letting folks slide because they think they're smarter than the grand jury and can uh, just say, I don't recall, or they don't uh, want to give a full answer, or they think they can get away with with uh, just uh, throwing lines of baloney at the grand jury, they're in for another story. And uh, you also have to recall that uh, during the ComEd uh, 4 trial and during MAPE's trial uh, and in the uh, Ed Burke Aldermanic trial, there were people brought in who uh, were given letters that said uh, that uh, all they had to do was tell the truth, and they they uh, sometimes painstakingly and sometimes uh, in close to tears, uh, they would uh, they would answer, but they uh, did not violate their agreements. And if they had let, if the prosecution had let off the uh, former chief of staff of uh, the ex speaker of the house, then you know, that would just kind of uh, open the floodgates to the idea that, hey, you can say anything and get away with it. They don't want anybody to get that idea in their head. I was going to say another point that I think is, is would be very well taken is that when you're in a situation such as Tim found himself, uh, the feds are not going to ask you any question to which they do not already know the answer. So, yeah, I think they they clearly knew what they were going to ask about when he came into the grand jury, and um, they knew they even like I said, I heard the tape. They were even uh, repeating uh, one of the prosecutors during the uh, interview of of uh, Tim Mapes in the federal grand jury. You know, repeatedly made the point clear. You know. It, you're supposed to tell the truth here. You got immunity to tell the truth here, and you could get in trouble if you, if you don't tell the truth. And uh, it didn't seem to make any difference. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and along with us we have Charlie Wheeler and Ray Long with the Chicago Tribune. Well, Ray, I guess that leaves us with where does the case against Michael Madigan stand at this point? Right now, uh, the trial is set for October 8th. This is a trial in which Madigan is charged with racketeering, uh, bribery-related counts, and uh, uh, Mike McLean, the longtime uh, ComEd lobbyist and the 
a former state lawmaker, Democratic lawmaker from Quincy, is a co-defendant in that case. The case was delayed because uh, the there is a case out of Indiana, unrelated, in which uh, some of the types of charges that were brought against Madigan have been challenged as to whether or not uh, they could actually uh, be uh, something that would fall under the category, broad category of bribery, whether quid pro quos need to be involved or not. They're trying to sort all that out in that Indiana case. And because it, it falls over some of the same ground that the charges, the type of charges uh, against Madigan fall under, then uh, the judge here uh, decided let's not do this case twice let's only do it once the supreme court is expected to rule in in june if not before uh, on this case from indiana they feel then that uh, they could get clear guidelines that was a win for madigan in the court uh, they his people his defense lawyers were saying hey we need to get some clarity here before we go up here, we could have a whole different strategy and trial, depending on how this case breaks. And if it breaks in their favor, they'll uh, have a, a much different strategy than if they uh, have to contest the, the charge as it uh, is in the indictment they face right now. Yeah, Charlie, your thoughts on this uh, case out of Indiana? I know we've talked about it in the past a bit, but uh, how it might apply to Madigan uh, you, from from your reading, knowing you're not an attorney, but from your reading, what do you, what do you think about it? Well, I, I think even if the U.S. Supreme Court comes down and says, yes, the uh, federal bribery statute uh, does not criminalize payments unless there's a specific quid pro quo agreement uh, and gratuities don't fall into that category. As Ray indicated, that's only some of the charges against Madigan. So he's, he'll, he's still gonna face other charges that aren't related to this particular uh, issue. So I think in, in a sense, the best he can hope for is maybe narrowing what he's going to face. And as Ray suggested, this would allow his defense attorneys to prepare better to make the case that no, he's, he's innocent. Ray, is that um, when it comes to federal prosecutors, it's not a slam dunk when they bring charges, but boy, they have quite the track record of convictions. Is there has there been talk, or have you heard much out there regarding a possible plea deal in this case that Madigan's people might wait and see how this you know this case out of Indiana how this is dealt with, whatever? But maybe there might be some type of conversations in the works. Personally, I think I'd be stunned if uh, Madigan cut a deal on. on on this uh he's reached into his campaign funds to pony up eight million dollars for uh, defense attorneys and so i think that he's a guy who believes he did nothing wrong and he's going to do everything he can to prove that and and play it to the wall that seems to fit into his overall psyche from what i can tell i'm no psychologist but he doesn't like to uh to be uh, accused of wrongdoing, and uh, he has uh, made it emphatically clear that he did nothing wrong. Charlie, you know him as well, too. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. He's he is a person who's who's 
not used to losing, I guess would be the way to, to put yeah. it. Yeah, and I think this is this maneuver with the court here is and fits into Madigan's uh, longtime strategy of trying to win before you actually get to the point where the race is underway. So he's trying to knock out as many charges as possible before he uh, goes on trial. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch that, of course, and see what happens over the next few months. But uh, let's switch gears because something is happening next week that we always pay a lot of attention to on this show, and that is the governor giving his budget state of the state address. I'm sure the governor has a lot of things that he will tout, including the state's better financial picture, Charlie, but he's also got some current issues that he's trying to deal with, not the least of which is the influx of asylum seekers to the city of Chicago. Uh, just this week, the governor and Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkel announcing that they would be asking for an additional $250 million from both the state and county to uh, continue to respond to Chicago's migrant crisis. You think that's going to take up a lot of his time when it comes to his budget address? Oh, man, I would say that he's, he's going to tout the successes that he's had, particularly the fact that we've had a number of credit upgrades, the fact that we've reduced our payables and we're pretty much on track with paying bills on time. We've also got a very healthy rainy day fund of several billion dollars compared to a few years ago when it was like 87,000. So he's going to talk about all the good things his administration has done, but the difficult part is going to come down to the numbers. Uh, back in November, the governor's office of management and budget put out a forecast and it, predicted that this current fiscal year, which ends June 30th, FY24, is going to have a surplus in, in general funds of $422 million. But then they said the budget coming up, FY25, is looking at a deficit of $891 million. So that's the latest official word from the governor's office. Now, after he releases his budget, Gambi will come up with a new forecast. But you mentioned the, the migrant pressure that he's had. He's, the, the governor has agreed to put $182 million into this fiscal year, or I'm sorry, for next fiscal year to help deal with the situation. You also have asks, for example, the State Board of Education came out in January and adopted a budget that asks for an increase of $794 million in the general funds. And the Chicago Teachers Union president, Stacey Davis Gates, kind of ridiculed that and says, that's not enough. You know, we, we need more in Chicago. Uh, the local governments, the Illinois Municipal League came out with its kind of wish list. And one of the things they want to do is restore the locals' share of income tax receipts to what it was when the income tax was first instituted, where the local governments would get 10% of the state's take. It's been reduced down to 6.5%. And I did a rough calculation. And to push it back up to 10% would cost another billion dollars. Uh, you also have questions about staffing at the Department of Corrections, Children and Family Services, some of the human service agencies. And you have questions about pay for a lot of these people. So there's basically there's going to be an awful lot of pressure to do things for different constituencies 
and there's it, and I guess this is universally always the case. There are always more asks and more genuine, legitimate needs than there's money to go around. And I do not think we're going to see any tax increases. I could be wrong, but I'd be very surprised if there's any suggestion uh, heading into uh, an election that we should raise taxes. Yeah, Ray, I would bet we hear maybe some criticism of the Texas governor, Greg Abbott. He is the person behind a lot of this, uh, uh, moving these uh, migrants into cities, busing them into cities. But uh, do you think we'll hear anything about the mayor of Chicago? Because as we just touched on there, this money that the city and and Cook County have agreed to put forth toward helping these asylum seekers, apparently there had been some discussion that the city would also agree to this. And at the last minute, from what we've understood, the mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, uh, refusing to go along with that. So uh, what do you think of that? Do you think we're going to hear anything when it comes to uh, uh, how the governor would characterize the mayor? Well, how the governor would characterize the mayor in public is a, probably a lot different from how he would characterize him when he's just <laughs> talking to kids behind closed doors. Uh, the uh, deal that you were talking about was expecting to get, I believe, around $70 million from the mayor who had uh, committed to uh, giving money to uh, throw into the pot here from the county and the and the uh, state. And then uh, a couple of days ago, he didn't show up when uh, President uh, Cook County President uh, Tony Breckwinkle and uh, Governor Pritzker showed up for uh, their share of the of the deal and uh, announced that. And so it is one more in a series of uh, cascading problems that Mayor Brandon Johnson has and uh, at the bottom of that waterfall of issues is his credibility, which just is getting drowned a little more every day because he uh, does not seem to be on track with uh, any kind of solid management of of the issues. Uh, coming back to his budget and the budget of the state, uh, you also have to remember uh, that the state is under constant pressure to pour money into pensions too and uh, the the state has uh, such a a terrible track record of funding uh, their pensions that over the years after short changing them for decades and decades they now have to start paying the interest back on on those payments and their uh, pension payments um, have gotten to the point where they're taking up a huge chunk of the of the budget um, that is a constant pressure and one that uh, they just can't uh, uh, ignore. And uh, it, as Charlie said, you know, he pointed out that uh, the the local governments have have not received the same share that they uh, uh, used to get. And as a result, the local governments have to charge more on property taxes. So. Um, it's easy to spike the football when you're when you're uh, uh, not pay, paying all your pension payments and you're uh, taking more money away from the locals and you're uh, and it's raining COVID relief money. But now uh, you actually might have to manage the budget in a way that is uh, very difficult for some folks who haven't re- really had to to uh, be strained by a real budget dilemma. And this uh, 
this could be a year where you see where the rubber meets the road for the Democrats uh, in control of both chambers and the governor's office. Ray, just a couple of minutes left here, but real quick, I wanted you to talk about a story that you and some colleagues also worked on, and this was to do with uh, some what we often call pork projects that were put in the current budget, the budget that we're now operating under in the state. Uh, What did you find? Well, we found that at least $150 million were steered toward uh, uh, Democratic uh, districts, uh, districts where uh, Senate uh, senators and House members were uh, the ones in control of the district who were representing the district. Um, there uh, was a lot of earmarks. There were also funds that were not earmarked, um, and there were newly designated funds, and uh, the Republicans are are saying they didn't get any of this, and uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, Governor Jim Edgar, a guy who, oddly enough, had a a period where he uh, oversaw a chamber with, or uh, oversaw a general assembly that had both houses Republican, Uh, another time he had both houses Democrat, another time he had uh, split chambers. So he saw this kaleidoscope of differences and he said this is the first time he'd ever seen a breakdown so lopsided uh, by uh, partisan breakdown that's so lopsided. And the Democrats don't want to give any details. They're just uh, not helpful in trying to say where they want to send the public's money, taxpayer money. And uh, we're... uh, we're having to work it real hard to uh, get everything figured out. And Charlie, I'll let you weigh in on this as well. Well, for most of the time that I was a reporter, we had divided government in the sense, typically it was a Republican governor dealing with a Democratic legislature and generally in, in, in both chambers. And so when it came down to dividing up the so-called pork, and I would add as, a, as an aside, pork is something in your district that is a wasteful expenditure that in my district is a necessary public improvement. Typically, the leaders, the Senate president and minority leader, House Speaker minority leader, will get their share. And then lawmakers who faced a tough reelection battle would get some. But a rank and file lawmaker in a safe district usually would get shut out. But that changed. Over the last couple of decades, as, as Ray's story pointed out very strongly in this current budget, where the Republicans were basically shut out, and the Democrats' response was, well, yeah, but we put money into schools, we put money into corrections, we put money into other state agencies, we build highways in your district. So you're, you're getting something, but you don't get this kind of ability to funnel money into very special projects that maybe could not stand on their own in a full and open debate. Before we go to our notes from the field, I also want to mention that the former state senator, Sam McCann, I brought up his name earlier, at the last minute after the prosecution was almost ready to rest its case in a a corruption case against him in federal court in Springfield, he decided to change his plea to guilty. He'll be sentenced later this summer. He was on trial for alleged misuse of campaign money. Charlie, let's go to you for our notes from the field. Okay, well, this is something that is maybe more upbeat than what we've been discussing so far about corruption and pork and so on. But the Illinois High School Association is adding another sport to its roster. 
and that is girls flag football. The IHSA announced this past week that teams are going to compete for a state title uh, for the first time. More than 100 schools are going to be involved. So kudos to the IHSA for, and I should add, the Chicago Bears were very much involved in trying to promote this for girls flag football. That's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and along with me, we've had Charlie Wheeler and the Chicago Tribune's Ray Long. Look for State Week where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.